Oh, there we are. All right. Uh, just by, by faith and not by the works of the law. And so it's really good stuff. And uh, we're going to talk about more about the works of the law uh, and what, their, what the purpose was for the, God giving us the law. Uh, although we're not, as Paul has argued, we're never justified. God was never, God's intention was never for us to be justified. Um, there's a little bit of a ring, Tara. I don't know if you can help out with that. Uh, we uh, are never, God's intention was never for us to be justified through the works of the law. But there is a purpose, and we're going to get into that next week. So hope you come back next week. But although we're not justified by the law, there's certainly a meaning and a purpose of why God gave the law to Moses. And we're going to be talking about that next week. But this week we're going to focus on what uh, uh, just the amazing gift that is given to us in the gospel message. And then there's a, a, a tricky passage of scripture that we're going to be covering today as well that I want to kind of focus on. Because uh, throughout church history, this passage of scripture was uh, is a means in which people depart as to what is going to happen or what God's intention truly was about national Israel or was God's promise to Abraham to a spiritual Israel. And so there's been two kind of main flows or streams of thought coming from the church in that regard. And so this is one of the texts that we're going to be covering today. Uh, we'll, they would often, or people will often go to to try to discern those things. And so I kind of want to talk about that as well. Um, so there's really some, a lot of stuff in this passage of Scripture. So without any further ado, let's get into the Word. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter 3 for me. Galatians chapter 3, and I want to go back and just read a few verses that we covered last time to kind of get our brains uh, back into the, the pattern of what we were uh, teaching before the Christmas season. And again, this is Paul uh, arguing that it has always been God's intention for us to receive salvation, to receive eternal life through the promise given through Abraham and not through the works of doing the works of the law, the Mosaic law or any other law. In verse 11, he says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. He's laid that out in previous verses. Because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. We've discussed that. that the law and, and grace, God's grace and God's law, they are not, they're, they're mutually exclusive from one another. You can't have a little bit of law and a little bit of grace. And hope that God will let you in because of his grace. And you've, worked, you've done enough in your own righteousness to, to merit his goodness, his good grace to you. It's, it's, they can, they're mutually exclusive. They're incompatible with one another. It's either works of the law and doing all the works of the law. Because our God is eternal. He's, uh, he's perfect. He's fully just. He's without sin. And so if you truly want to merit your way to God through the works of the law, you better keep every law. And you better keep it for your entire lifetime. But if it's by grace, it is through God's unmerited favor extended to us, through what Jesus has done, through what Jesus coming into his creation as a man and living the law perfectly because he was not only man but eternal God, had the opportunity to do that for us, and then he would go to the cross and bear the punishment of sin Obviously not sin of his own, but for the sin of all of us, all who will believe. 
show a eternal life that is displayed to us in scripture is not an eternal life where God says, if you believe on Jesus, then I'm going to wink at your sin. No, it's much deeper than that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And his one and only son came and lived the law that you and I could not live perfectly, fulfilled the Mosaic law on our behalf, and then went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin because God is holy and righteous and he will judge sin. Jesus was whipped and physically abused indeed before he went to the cross and on the cross. But scriptures also declare that God's wrath was poured out upon him. The judgment of God was poured upon the Father. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He cries, cries out, Psalm 23. Three hours of darkness, all those things, the punishment that you and I deserve were taken upon Jesus so that you and I, today, some 2,000 years later, can hear the gospel message, identify and see our sinfulness and turn from our own ways and our religious ways or our whatever ways we are and turn and trust in Christ alone and his accomplished work. The scriptures declare that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. It is a gift given to us and to receive that gift you must receive it by faith. By believing and trusting. And any time that a false teacher or a thought comes into your head that wants to make you merit your way to have a relationship with God, you must reject it. Because it is through Jesus and trusting and believing in his accomplished work alone. Paul will go on to say in Galatians 5, he says, If you add the law or works to grace, you have fallen from grace. It is that important that we understand our righteous uh, position before God is not of our own. It is all through the meritous work of Jesus Christ demonstrated by the grace, his unmerited love given to us in the gift by believing and trusting what he's done. It is through faith. And Paul, we see that we have seen the strong language that he's used in, in this letter because he understands if people get this wrong, they're going to hell. If they're going to try to mix grace with works, you have fallen from grace, he will say. Because they're mutually exclusive or incompatible with one another. It's either all the law or is it a, it's of grace or through faith. And so he's made this argument for us. I'm re-preaching sermons I've already preached, so I'll move on here. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? He redeemed us. He purchased us from the curse. We were in God's curse. We were born separated from him because of our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinning and going against them. We are all born with a nature that is separated from God. It's most easily provable when we raise kids up. We never have to teach them how to do wrong, do we? <laughs> we're always trying to point them to how to do it right because the nature that we're born with is, is a rebe a rebellious against authority, against our God. We see that in society today. I'm going to refrain from that. Keep going here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So, so Christ came into his world and became, hello, Sierra. Welcome. Oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to do that. I, I forgot. It embarrasses me. I'm just excited to see you. Sorry. So Christ is the curse, or became the curse for us. He redeemed us from the curse that we were born with. 
are born under. Right? We have to understand that all humanity is born under the curse of God. I was listening to a sermon uh, while on vacation, and the guy made a, a good point. He said, you know, uh, people that are, will be spend eternity in hell will not be out of the presence of God necessarily because they will be under the curse of God for all of eternity. That's what we're dealing with here. That is the, the importance of the gospel. That without people hearing the gospel message, believing and receiving Jesus as their Savior, they will remain under the curse of God. But Christ came and bore that curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, the Old Testament declares. Christ did that for us. He was our vicar. Verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. What a, just so much in this one verse. We see the promise, the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the ceremony carried out in Genesis chapter 15, was the foundation in which God was going to save a people. It was never through the Mosaic law. It was through the Abrahamic covenant. And we see here, Paul is giving us an insight into it's always been God's intention to save the Gentiles through the Abrahamic promise blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus. So what Jesus has done for us is made a way to not only break us free from the bondage of sin and from God's curse, but now we live in the blessing of God. Of no merit of our own. We dwell. We live under the blessing promised to Abraham through what Christ has done for us be the light of the Gentiles. And the down payment of this internal inheritance that we are given as we receive and truly and come into a saving encounter with Jesus is the, the third person of our triune God, God the Spirit who will come and has promised to indwell the believer, to give us a new heart, to make us new creature in Christ, to empower us to live this life that is impossible to live as the law demonstrates to us in our own strength. We who are in Christ are given the down payment of our inheritance, our eternal inheritance, and that is the Spirit through faith. And Paul's going to go on to demonstrate to us what it means how to, to walk in the power of the Spirit, how we get the fruit of the Spirit, these are all important things to apply to our lives so that we can walk in the power given to us and the empowerment of the Spirit to live a life for the glory of God. Verse 15, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So he's given us an illustration. He's saying, look, just as a will, a last will and testament, right? Uh, my grandpa gave a, a will. Uh, wrote out a will before he passed on and he had three daughters and he divvied out his, his things to his three daughters and once he signed those papers and they were certified however that stuff happens uh, legal things happen right? it was done unless he were to change it before he were to pass as he passed those wishes are to be carried out in his name 
someone, one of the, my aunts could not come in and say, I don't disagree with this will. I think we need to change it. Right? Everybody would laugh. Say, no, this is what Grandpa wanted. So Paul's using the illustration of a human will or a, a will that we would make up as an illustration of what God has done through the Abrahamic covenant. Nothing is going to change it. We saw the ceremony. We saw, you know, in the, in the, the ancients to, to, to ratify a covenant. They would slay an animal. They would separate the animal in half, and the two people would walk down the middle of the slain animal to signify their, their commitment to the covenant that they've made. In Genesis 15, God has Abraham slay an animal and se separate them. But then he causes a deep sleep to come upon Abraham. And God walks down the middle of that animal, signifying that it has nothing to do with the righteousness of Abraham, of what he can do, but it had everything to do with what God was going to do and his faithfulness and his covenant promises. Nothing's going to set that aside. No new teaching that's going to come this year about how to cling to the law and add Jesus to it is going to change the fact that salvation and eternal life is found through the promises given to Abraham and that it's been given to the Gentiles, that all who will receive and believe him will have eternal life and will be given the Spirit. Nothing's going to change that. Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and this is the tricky verse. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And notice it's a singular seed. If you were to read uh, Genesis chapter 12, this is verse 7, I believe, you would just kind of assume that it, it would mean all of his seed. But the apostle Paul, under the authority given to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ, clarifies for us what that initial promise was, who that initial promise was made to. He goes on to say, he does not say seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed. And who is that seed? It is Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is the fulfillment given through Christ. Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. The fulfillment, God's fulfillment of his promise is through Christ. It is his eternal reign. And all who are added into the bride of Christ is what God was pointing to, the fulfillment that is found in Christ. And so we go on here in verse 17. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God. And so the law, the Mosaic law, 430 years later, was given to Moses, but it does not invalidate the Abrahamic covenants. does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Why? For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously, graciously, what does that word mean? Unmerited, as demonstrated in the ceremony in Genesis 15. Abraham did nothing to merit that. We receive the promise of Abraham through nothing that we have done. God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. It's unmerited. Salvation 
is through the promise of God and not of works of the law. And so getting back to verse 16 here, the promise, this is the tricky verse. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And so uh, th- this is a, a point of, of difference that we, the Christian church has had because there are those that I uh, would say that the promise extended to Abraham because it wasn't just um, a seed. It was, there was multiple aspects of the promise given to Abraham. There was a land promise. There was a nation promise. There were many other parts of that promise that are found in Genesis. And there were those who were, where I lean that would say that the, those were literal promises given to Abraham, that the land that was specifically defined in Scripture will ultimately be given to Christ. He's the fulfillment in the millennial reign. There are those who would say, and I know and love dearly and grateful that they have a different opinion and, and, and I can learn from them and vice versa. And so that's the culture that I've always tried to pursue here is that we could have differences. I know there's people in this room that have, are on two different sides of this story, but we are together. God has brought us together and we can, we can uh, uh, you know, reason with one another through the scripture and learn from one another. But there are those that say that this is a, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is a, is a spiritual fulfillment. That it is not, the, it has never been the national Israel that was God's true Israel. It was those that would receive Christ and be under him and that it's a spiritual kingdom. It's often referred to as millennialism. You know, I'm Premillennial, so I believe in the literal millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And they would say, the millennium is happening now in the hearts of people. As the gospel is proclaimed, God is building his kingdom. That this fulfillment was a, uh, the, the spiritual dual fulfillment was a spiritual fulfillment found in Christ. And so they would say that the church is the true Israel. And it's not a literal promise that's going to happen in the future one thing i do know there's going to come a point where we're all going to be able to look back and we're all going to be able to see exactly what god meant and seen but we see mystery in scripture we these are events that depending on your view may have or is happening now or will happen in the future and so i just want to caution you to you might have a dogmatic stance on these things but but be open to other opinions because as we'll see there's scripture proof text for both sides i just want to view a couple of those i mean this is i'm just this is from 30,000 feet so don't think an entire theology is built on a couple verses but i want to encourage you if you want to study this out do so this let me give you a couple warnings that i've encountered when coming to these types of things what you don't want to do is find an author that is totally against the opposing side because all they're going to do is just straw man and have fallacious argumentation and ad hominem attacks. That's what I found. What I, what, you, what I would encourage you to do is find an author or a theologian that believes that spiritual Israel or vice versa and read and study them. Let them build the case for you. And I'll ultimately allow the most important point, the word of God and the spirit of God to be your ultimate authority and not men. All right? He's given us his word. The author 
uh, it's living and powerful, and it's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He has given us his word that we can weigh these matters out. So it's just a couple of warnings in, um, in pursuing those things. Just be willing to listen to the other side. I don't know about you, but I've been wrong before. <laughs> I was so sure I had a certain part, aspect of theology down, and then I, I was shown that I was wrong. That I taught God's people something that was wrong. I have to answer to that. So I remain open that although I am confident, especially in, the, in the, both sides would agree to the essentials of the gospel, that salvation is through grace by the works of Jesus alone. But I remain open that I something in my theology might be wrong. And I want the Spirit to show that to me. But if I'm closed off about it, it's been my experience that it's never led to change or an opportunity for the Spirit to show me a different side of things. So just a couple verses to demonstrate why people might have a differing opinion. And ultimately, all the Word of God, right, is all cohesive. It all makes sense. We just are at a point where in our frailty and our noetic effects from the fall um, and a point in, in his redemption story that we, we are, there are some things that are left to be determined. And I think that's where we're at here. And that's okay. There will be a point where in the consummation, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? We're all going to look back and go, oh, Jared was right. Just kidding. That was my joke. My zinger. Anyway, going on. So Genesis 12, 17. Here's the promise. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, which is seed in the Hebrew, I will give this land. So that's the promise that Paul brings up in Genesis 3, 16. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then in Genesis 13, 15, for he says this, for I will give you and your offspring or seed forever all the land that you see. And so if offspring or seed means Jesus, then the fulfillment of this promise is in Jesus. And this eternal kingdom is Christ's eternal kingdom that will land forever. And so we have the promise here who is Christ. We've seen that. And then here's a couple of proof texts that people would try to show you to show you why they had this view of a spiritual kingdom. Matthew 21, 43, this is Jesus talking to the religious leaders. I'm sorry, I'm, my back's like cramping up. I'm getting lower and lower here, but I'm trying to straighten out. <clears throat> He's talking to religious people. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, or your translation will probably say nation, producing its fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And so they would point to a, a verse like this. And again, this is 30,000 feet. There's much more to these different views. Romans 9 also speaks of, uh, that's Paul, the same author of Ephesians. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, he would say. So it doesn't matter about your nationality or where you were born. Nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, being born again. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So there's a few verses that they would go to. 
On the other hand, someone that was leading a literal reign of Christ would take you to Romans 11, 25 through 27. Same book, same author. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Mystery in Scripture declares a, something that's been uh, hidden from uh, others until of a certain point. He's declaring this mystery. Brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, national Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so we see two distinct people groups, not one spiritual uh, Israel, but two distinct. And he's saying uh, a hardening of Israel has come in so that the Gentiles, right, this is dispensationalism, so that the Gentiles in this church age uh, have this opportunity to, to uh, spread and advance the gospel to all the corners of the world. So this hardening has come to Israel. So the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Or the church age, that people would call it. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And there's this future coming in the millennial uh, carrying out of God's redemption plan that Israel will ultimately, the promises given to Abraham will ultimately literally be uh, given to national Israel. Christ will reign in the temple mount, in the temple in Jerusalem, um, and it will be forever his kingdom. But this will come a point where the Jews will ultimately see Christ as the Messiah. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's an Old Testament passage that really speaks to this. This is a prophetic utterance of the future from Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. He's prophesying to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and he goes upon this day then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer and he doesn't say to the Gentiles here he says on the house of David and on the residents of Jerusalem and they will look at me whom they pierced the Jews will see that the one that they pierced is indeed the Messiah and they will mourn for him as one mourns for any and only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for the firstborn. Going on verse 11, and on that day, the morning, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem, so the morning, will be as great as the morning of Hadad, Rimon, and in the plain of Megiddo, that's the battle of Armageddon. And so the morning will be that, it'll be a great morning when they realize that Christ is indeed the Messiah. Again, this is my biases speaking through the text here. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of David's house by itself, and their women by themselves, the family. So we're seeing specific Jewish tribes and families being called out here, not the Gentiles, but national Israel. The family of Nathan's house by itself and their women by themselves. And the family of Levi's house by itself and their women by themselves. So this is, he's prophesying of these things that are to come in the literal fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So those are kind of, again, 30,000 feet. I'm sure whatever side you're on, you're like, you didn't cover it nearly as good as it could have been, right? And I'm sorry for that. You can send me an email and tell me how to better represent that. But what I don't want us to do is miss the point. Because oftentimes we'll go to a text like this and then we'll just split off and start going down these different views of something that hasn't is non-essential as far as what God's redemption story is going to be carried out in the future. Because that wasn't Paul's point. 
And so we got to go back to the text. This is a verse that people will take you to and say, see, it's in Israel. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. But Paul's point wasn't necessarily that. We find that back in verse 17. And he says this, look, I've mentioned this, that the fulfillment given to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And Paul's point was not to determine how national or spiritual Israel is to move on from that point. His point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. That's his point. When he wrote this letter, it was to get to this point that even though the Mosaic law came later, it does not invalidate the Abrahamic one. For if the inheritance, verse 18, is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. And so what's the point? What's our application for us today? No matter what side you are on, as far as amillennialism or premillennialism, I can't say those words in public. I, you know what I'm talking about, millennialism. Wherever you're at with that, it does not change the essence of the gospel. That those right now who hear the gospel call and are convicted by the Holy Spirit and are drawn by God, understand their need for a Savior, for a Messiah, can right now believe in Christ as their Savior by faith and be pulled out of the cursing of God and into his blessing. doesn't matter what side you're on on that. We both agree the same thing. That's the essentials of the gospel. That's the point. Paul gives us this point in verse 27 and 28 of Galatians 3, if you want to jump down there. So the first point is Christians are children of the promise. Why? If the promise was given to Christ, if Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, why are we then recipients of the promise? Because when you're saved, you're placed and engrafted into Christ in a spiritual sense. We're pulled from the first Adam and and adopted into God's family into the last Adam. And so he is the benefactor of the blessing of God. Christ is. But because we are in Christ, because we are the bride of Christ, we are benefactors of God because God sees Christ's righteousness and not our own. For those, he says in verse 27, for those who were baptized or fully immersed into Christ by the Spirit being born again have been clothed with Christ right can you imagine being in a cellar in a dungeon somewhere completely locked up being bonded there was, there's no hope for you that is your eternal existence let's say and all of a sudden someone comes in and unloosens the shackles and says you're free and you break free of the bonds of the chains and the door is unlocked for you to step outside, but you just sit there and go, I'm free, I'm free, but you're still dwelling in the dungeon. Oftentimes, I feel like that's what we can as Christians do. What Christ has done for us is touching. We've been clothed with the royal garments of our God. We don the helmet of his salvation. We don the armor of God. He wants us to step out of the prison door cell and be good soldiers for Jesus Christ. 
good ambassadors for him. We're so much more than just free from sin and we just have to dwell in darkness. No, live for God. He's donned you. He's clothed you in Christ. He's given you the spirit of God. We can live victoriously for his glory in this world, no matter what's going on outside. Verse 28, there's no Jew or Greek. What words for a time such as this? When we have so much division and so many people in political positions trying to segregate us into nationalities or races or sexes or lack thereof. In the gospel, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female since you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are the bride of Christ, church. We are in Christ. We dwell in the blessing of God because of what Christ has done. The fulfillment, Abrahamic fulfillment is in Christ, and if you're in Christ this morning, you are a partaker of God's blessing and not his curse. It's an amazing gift. Another point. Christians no longer are no longer under God's curse, but under God's, but are God's recipients of His blessing. That blessing He gave Abraham so long ago. The Lord said to Abram, "Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation." As the nation promised, "I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing." No matter how that fulfillment is carried out the, the fulfillment of God's plan. You reside in God's blessing this morning if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, I call out to you and say, repent. Turn from whatever you thought was going to get you into good standing with your God, whether that's religion or just living a good life. Because Paul has made it abundantly clear that there's no righteousness or no law we can follow that can earn merit and favor with our God. It is through believing and trusting in Christ alone that you will be pulled out of the curse of God and be placed into the eternal blessing given to us in Christ Jesus. Come. It's your choice. What will you do? Is today the day of your salvation? Will you believe and trust and turn from anything else other than what Christ has done for you. Because his promise is, if you do so, he will make you new. He will give you a new heart. God the Spirit will indwell you and empower you to live a life that brings glory to him, but also makes us completely satisfied as we're finally restored to what we were originally designed for. It's a beautiful thing. It's your choice. Will you believe on Christ this morning? Galatians 3, 9. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Abraham believed God in his promises. This morning, will you believe God in his promises he's given to us in his word? Paul will go on in Romans 4 to say, Blessed are those whose lawless access is actually, he's pulling from Psalm 33. Blessed, you want to live under God's blessing? Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. What a blessing it is to be in Christ Jesus and be broken free from what we truly deserve. We will never have to answer for our sin because Christ has paid the penalty for us. I just came across this poem I want to close with this this week from P.P. Bliss. I thought it was beautiful. Free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus hath fled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by, by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once and for all. Once and for all, O sinner, receive it. Once and for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross and the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once and for all. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your goodness, for your blessing. And the longer we live, Lord, the longer we understand it's truly not anything we can do. It's all of you and your promise, the love you've extended to us through Jesus, and we're so grateful for that. Help us to live a life that reflects the love you've extended to us. Help us to love the, the world outside these walls like you've loved us. I pray, Lord, that you would use this church as ambassadors, that we would be good soldiers of Christ, that we would don your armor that you've given us, and we would go to the fight. Your promise was the gates of hell will not stifle the church. I ask in the power of the Spirit that it be so for our church. Through your power, God, you delight and specialize in taking things that are small and using them for your glory. We ask that you do the same for us, God, or with us, for your glory's sake. In Christ's precious name, amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation now. Jesus.